Welcome to the Divorced and Done podcast. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by my friend and colleague, Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers focused on giving you the information necessary to move through the divorce process quickly and efficiently to maximize benefit to you and your family without financially or emotionally bankrupting yourselves. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Divorced and Done. This is Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. And this week we're doing another listener question episode. Thank you, everyone, for sending all of your questions to us and continuing to do so, that, so that we can address your fact patterns for you and considering them in context of our multi-step process for getting you divorced and done. On this sunny, warm Okanagan afternoon, Darren Schmidt, how are you? I'm good. So we should let the listeners know that you and I have been like hanging out kind of together here for the last uh, less than a week. Um, and it's been great to have you visit us out here in the Okanagan, but it has been a heat wave. It's been a it heat wave week. Absolutely. And you are to be commended in your house for uh, serendipitously, fortuitously installing window air conditioning units that we're both enjoying right now. They're fantastic. Good for you and your fantastic home improvement skills. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you were able to uh, live comfortably. Um, but thinking of summer, you know, keeping the summer theme going, I'm thinking about the song The Boys of Summer re- released by Don Henley. Remember this song? Do you, do you uh, I do, yes. What a song. The Boys of Summer uh, was released by Don Henley in 1984. And uh, apparently the music was composed not only by him, but also by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Tom Petty seems to have his fingers in a lot of pots through the 80s. Uh, Quite a talented artist himself, clearly. Um, The Boys of Summer was quite successful, obviously, for Don Henley. It went on to get covered by a couple of other artists in the early 2000s. And I actually kind of remember... The covers, they were kind of like jazzy electronic versions. I remember as well. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. So the first cover that's mentioned here online is by someone called DJ Sammy. Obviously, the artist name, I think, has long been forgotten of the remake. Um, That rose in the United States to the Hot Dance Singles Billboard number five. So DJ Sammy obviously did well. And then some group called Ataris. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, that rose to the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, number 20 on the list. So this song's done really well. Boys of Summer, I think it's kind of an iconic, just kind of classic rock jam when you're thinking about summertime. And certainly the intro of that song, probably lots of listeners have it going through their mind right now. Uh, what a fun song. And what a fun week it's been having you here, Rob. So thanks for well, coming thank out. Thank you. It's been great. Uh, the summer's been great as we roll into the Canada Wait Canada Day weekend here. But as we do that, I know we have some listener questions and we want to move to those because that is the core of what we're doing here at Divorced and Done, giving folks some perspective into how they can move through that process efficiently and effectively. So perhaps if not the boys of summer, maybe we have a more 
low tech and ad free royalty free music <laughs> that uh, we can use to everyone's thinking it you know we talk about this music off the top and it's like oh well why don't you have these clips let's tell everyone right now we can't afford it that lovely theme music that we have coming in rolling into the beginning and rolling out the end it's free we it's can't afford free. it yet let's say without let's me. say that yes yeah so Number one, firstly, thanks everyone for listening to us. Uh, and because you're uh, sending us such great questions, we're able to field these questions. But of course, each uh, episode, as we transition to listener questions, you're treated by indeed the ad free, royalty free music of the cowbell. So here we go. There you go. That's the sound that you'll be treated to as we move to listener questions. Um, if you want to send your own question into us, it really is important to us that, uh, you do so because we do address them and we're happy to help give you some information. We're not your lawyers. Uh, we're just lawyers doing a podcast. We want to make that clear, but please do send them into us to our uh, Gmail account, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Some so, would say the information is worth what you pay for it. And that's why we're here. <laughs> All right. So we have a follow-up question from a listener who we answered in part her question uh, some weeks ago. Uh, the listener's initial question had to deal with, there was two real properties involved in the relationship between her and her husband. Her family, uh, either her parents or extended family, basically gifted her a cottage property in Ontario during the marriage and it was initially in the listener's name alone once it was gifted from her family to her. And then uh, she subsequently transferred the property into her name and her husband's name during the relationship. The parties also, her and her husband owned uh, like a, a house that they lived in, the family house. They own that jointly as well. Uh, so we addressed that on a prior episode, but she had a follow-up question. So sure, we'll, we'll help her with this. She says... Um, you answered my question last week. Thank you very much. You were very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for asking the question. The substance of her question is this. During negotiations uh, after their relationship broke down, she says her and her ex decided that she would take the cottage and that he would take the house, just like we had apparently suggested uh, in our initial take on this question. She says, I agreed to the property values that he chose, thinking that this would simply help move the process forward. She says that she had a lawyer that wrote up a separation agreement based on their negotiations and everyone thought they were well on their way. But uh, the other party apparently threw a wrench into things and now is refusing to sign the separation agreement. He, she says uh, that he's threatening to take her to court and thinks a judge would force the sale of the cottage house uh, he says he threatens that if I don't agree to more of his terms, that this is what will happen. He said, or she says that he sent a letter. It's uncertain whether he has a lawyer, but his last letter outlined 34 additional demands on top of what she previously thought was a fully sort of uh, agreed to separation agreement, save for everyone signing it. Um, basically, she says that these new demands have nothing to do with the property issue and all that stuff. Uh, she asks, is he right in that a judge would just order the sale of this cottage property when I've already agreed to um, basically the separation agreement as it stood previously? 
that she says that this is documented in our lawyer letters and in the draft separation agreement that was to embody the terms of separation. So uh, the gist of this, Rob, seems to be that there was an agreement in principle. He's now backing away from that, threatening court and just being kind of nasty. What, what do you think about this? So number one, 34 additional demands. I mean, as you and I both well know, Darren, yes, we negotiate separation agreements. Yes, we negotiate terms, lawyers exchanging letters. Uh, and that does create binding agreement because lawyers do bind their clients by our letters. Uh, but often things, not all terms will always be enclosed immediately right after those initial negotiations. So there can be some initial p additional pieces, but 34 pieces and then just throwing his hands up and saying, we're going to court, not at all. So even though we don't really have any context or any idea of the numbers, it sounds to me like he may now be negotiating in bad faith and potentially may have fired his lawyer. What immediately jumps to my mind, instead of getting into the muck with him and trying to renegotiate this or stoop to his level and saying, what do you want? If the listener was sincerely interested in the deal she made, exchanging cabin for house on his values, on the values that he had for those properties, clearly there was something there she wanted that it all worked out, the numbers worked out, that she was able to make that deal. If your lawyers exchanged letters, there should be case law uh, if you're in a Canadian jurisdiction. I know in Alberta there yeah, is. She's in Ontario. so Great. So there should be case law there that says letters exchanged between counsel, if that's what has happened, if he did have counsel, saying, yes, we agree on those broad brush big pieces she may now be he he's not the one that should be saying we're going to court she should be the one saying we're going to court he's not going to be making an application to say sell the cabin she'll be making an application to say enforce the agreement even though you don't have an agreement yet that's signed uh letters from counsel do bind your clients because counsel take instruction from your clients uh you you should be much closer to done than not although again Obviously, that depends on everything that was agreed. We obviously don't know all that's there. But if the house and the cabin were the big pieces and everything else is sort of minor, I would perhaps consider that avenue. Yeah, totally. So, bingo, on the, you have, if you have an agreement, you're done. Exactly. It's a, it's an agreement. You agreed. You don't get to come back to the well afterwards and say, sorry, here's 34 additional action items that I'd like to address. Yeah, I think it's too bad. So sad here, buddy. If in fact there was a confirmation in writing of terms of agreement, my thinking on this is that the listener simply goes, you have X number of days or weeks to confirm you're going to sign the separation agreement, which absolutely gives uh, effect to the prior agreement that yes. we've made. Yep. Failing which uh, we are going to go to court. And we are going to be asking for enhanced costs for the necessity of bringing that matter to court to enforce the agreement that we've already made. And I would think without any more additional context, if she brings that matter to court and includes this letter with 34 additional demands, and in fact, it's fairly clear, if not definitively clear, that they had a prior agreement. Well, that's this still other party's going to look, but it yes. is, but this yes. other party's going to look pretty bad in the eyes of the judge. Uh, so I actually, at this point, knowing what we know from the question, I actually think they are done because there is an agreement in place. And the fact that he doesn't think there's an agreement in place 
or wants to come back to the bargaining table, I think it's too bad. So sad. Absolutely. So hopefully that gives the listener some context and maybe gives her some sense that uh, she can move forward without continuing to spin tires. Let's move to the other uh, second question uh, we got this week. Uh, This listener says that she is a teacher, uh, that she has a child with her ex and that there's a um, shared parenting arrangement. I'm guessing Uh, it's not made abundantly clear in the question, but there's a shared parenting arrangement Uh, and that she was on strike last year um, in Ontario as a teacher and that her income on her T4 was lower than what her salary would have usually been four years prior. She asks, uh, for child support purposes, do we use what is recorded on my T4 for this year or what my income would have been if I wouldn't have been on strike? So, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? This is fairly straightforward. Normally, for the purposes of child support, we do use your prior year's tax return if you're a T4 employee, just for sake of simple calculation. But in this case, where there's likely been some major variation, because she's raising the question, she was on strike, she would be entitled to use her actual income for the purposes of calculating that support. Fairly straightforward. Yes. So, uh, child support should be adjusted based on fluctuations in income if there's a shared parenting arrangement the child support the guideline amount of child support is calculated under section 9 of the federal child support guidelines which basically as as we've described in prior episodes is is normally treated like a net set off approach you look at what parent a would pay parent b if parent b had the child in their care full time and vice versa Um, Although that is not technically stated at Section 9 of the Federal Child Support Guidelines, that seems to be what is the default. Uh, There seems to be some room for argument within Section 9, but basically it's a net set-off approach for shared parenting arrangements. If incomes go up or down under that, child support should be adjusted, and typically it's adjusted annually. So, um, yeah, the listener should take solace in the fact that uh, income has gone down, so perhaps her child support uh, will will either go up or down. And she depending. shouldn't hesitate to simply share that information with her ex yes. and say, look, you know, if they don't have lawyers right now, they have resolved all their big issues. This is what we'd call a corollary issue, meaning it's come after you've had your divorce, after you've had the big fight, or hopefully big resolution. Uh, for her to simply say to her ex, here's my information, here's my T4 from last year, a proof of earnings from when I was on strike. Uh, and she can go online, as we've talked about before, and find the table guidelines or the child's federal child support lookup. If you Google that federal child support lookup, you can get a simple calculator online that will show her child support obligation. Uh, and should be able to share that with her ex and say, this is where I'm at. And if you can resolve that amicably, fantastic. All right. So on to the third question this week. Uh, this listener says, uh, thank you for producing the Divorced and Done podcast. No, thank you for listening to the podcast. It's not possible without you listening to it. So thank you very much. And remembering uh, the catchy title. Because I, yeah. I think Divorced and Done is, I mean, we were going to be the Darren and Rob show, but yeah. Who would tune into that, right? They, um, not interested. Our moms? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, the listener says, uh, it's been very informative and helpful. So thank you for sending those comments. Uh, she says, I have a, a few questions and I'm hoping you can answer them for me. There's no children of the relationship and she lives in Alberta. 
which is where you are, Rob. Uh, first question in her email is, at what date are cash and investment balances deemed to be the amount to be split? Date of living separate and apart or the actual date of divorce or somewhere in between? It's like lobbing a softball. Rob, what, what do you think? Fantastic. So she married. She did say date of divorce. So that suggests to me they're going toward a divorce. They're not just living together. Um, it is not clear whether or not she's married, but okay. uh, she did use that. Let's assume she's married. Sure. So under our Family Property Act, which would apply to you in Alberta, whether you are married or not, assuming you have separated after January 1, 2020, which is crucial. In Alberta, our general rule of thumb is we value assets at date of trial. Now, obviously, for most people and most people listening to this podcast, you will not be going to trial because you're going to be resolving your issue outside of court and hopefully resolving either with the assistance of lawyers or not. So in that situation, knowing that the rule of thumb is valuing assets at date of trial, you can pick a different time to value those assets. Depending how long you've been separated or not, it may be appropriate to value those assets at date of separation, or if you, particularly if you've been separated for a long time, or if that separation is fairly fresh, and let's say you've been separated within the last year and there's been a lot of movement between joint assets, money from joint bank accounts, other bits and pieces, both of you buying different assets, it may be more appropriate to value all of your assets at a little bit of a later date. So that's a little bit contextual. But again, rule of thumb, we value a date of trial. Otherwise, uh, if you've been not a lot of complex assets and not a lot of joint assets or money going back and forth, causing a lot of confusion. Date of separation may be appropriate. What's your view, Darren? I think so. Yes, you are absolutely correct that the, the presumption under the family property legislation in whatever province you're in is very light. In this case, Alberta, uh, it is going to be the date of trial. So that's the presumption. So obviously people separate and then some time passes and rarely do things actually go to trial, but it would be the date that you sign the separation agreement or whatever. You'll, you'll pick a date. Um, but you can stray from that presumption if there's good reason to do that. I think a couple examples pop into mind. Um, firstly, if say you know, the investment or the bank account was held by one party through the course of the marriage. Um, and it was always sort of their account. Yes, technically it's family or marital property and it's presumptively divided equally as of date of trial. But I mean, if some years have passed since separation and you've been maintaining that account, I think you'd have a pretty good argument to say we should stray from that presumption on reasonableness grounds because I've been contributing to that. Maybe you've dumped money into it. Uh, your Absolutely. earnings have gone into it since separation. Why that should that account? Evaluation at separation. You're exactly right. Yeah. Why should this be divided as a date of trial because of your contribution solely to that account post-separation? But if it's a joint account or a joint asset, neither it's an investment account. Say it's a TFSA and it's just been sitting there. It's a mutual fund or a series of mutual funds or something. And no one's contributed to it since separation. And it's been subject to just normal market fluctuations in this current market, hopefully some increase in value. There's probably no good reason to stray from that presumption that it should be divided equally as of date of trial or date of agreement. 
So yes, it's contextual. The presumption is date of trial or date of agreement. But um, there's, like you say, Rob, there's lots of good reasons why you can ask for it to be separated equally or on some other basis, less than equally, whatever, as of date of separation. That's a fair ask. Well, so another, it's not a firm rule. No, and another great example, which we've talked about several times, is real estate. And I raised this in previous podcasts, particularly in our current market, with no matter really where you are in North America currently, our housing market is rising. And if you separated last year, you may have a valuation on your house from late sometime last year. That's probably not valid now. Even though it hasn't been a whole year that's passed, a valuation that's six months old is likely stale. You'd want another valuation on that property uh, to determine a current value now if you're signing a separation agreement now so that both parties are getting their fair share of that equity in the home. Yeah, for the purpose of a buyout, certainly. I mean, if you're selling it, the money's just going to be divided as as it would normally. But um, yeah, so uh, the second question from this listener uh, is this. When I move out of the family home, uh, am I fully responsible and accountable for my living expenses and my husband responsible for his living expenses? Or will, excuse me, will we share the cost of each other's expenses until we sign a settlement? I believe my monthly expenses will be considerably less than his as he will likely stay in the family home, which will cost more, not to mention some of his other personal expenses. So um, looks like the question here is basically, if I move out, is he going to pay for the house himself and I cover my own stuff, uh, my rent, etc.? And is that how we're just going to carry on and, and go from there? Or are they each equally responsible for each other's uh, living expenses. So, uh, Rob, what do you think? My view, for simplicity's sake, whoever moves out of the, or excuse me, whoever stays in the home should generally be responsible for the expenses of maintaining the home, including the mortgage, the insurance, and all of those pieces. Everyone should keep their expenses separately. And to answer a question that I'm sure is popping into some listeners' minds, if this is a situation where someone has stayed at home with the children, never earned any income, those sorts of concerns can be alleviated by interim child support or interim spousal support to make those expenses and make those payments. I don't like situations where you have both parties potentially paying each other's expenses pending settlement because more often than not, um, if there's a little bit of animosity between the parties, uh, that can lead to just more gas on the fire and more frustration, particularly if someone is paying a mortgage and then we have to consider child support and then we have to consider spousal support that can make that math tricky or undoing those pieces where someone has fronted someone else's expenses after separation and trying to figure out what someone is perhaps owed for those over above and beyond contributions the easiest way to do it is just say what's your child support obligation what's your spousal support obligation if that is a live issue uh and whoever stays in the house pays for those bills. Everyone just pays their own bills. The only caveat I would put to that is if your husband is staying in the house and he's paying a mortgage, presuming there's a mortgage on the house, he and it's coming solely out of his bank account, and then you own the house jointly, at some point if the house is sold, there'll be a period of time where he's contributing towards the principal balance of the mortgage on a monthly basis. There may be some accounting at that point to say, well, why would you get the benefit of 
that half of the equity when he solely contributed to the down payment or the payments of the mortgage on an ongoing basis. Clearly, the, as you say, Rob, the market is going up. So there'll be an increase in equity because Absolutely. of the market fluctuations. But there will also be a contribution from him on a month-to-month basis towards the principal balance of the mortgage. And it may be, from some perspective, some people's perspective, unfair to say you should have half of the equity paid off or built through his mortgage payments month by month, if that makes sense. Um, But it's likely not really enough, unless this persists for some years, to even probably worry about it. Well, I'd say Um, the corollary to that, to that example, if he were to remain in the home, pay everything, keep paying for the house while he lives there, while she goes somewhere else, uh, and assuming she's paying rent, maybe she has the kids more of the time or half time, she'd likely have that claim to some sort of support because she's paying rent. So those pieces, I would say, likely in the final analysis are a wash and you're going to divide those house proceeds equally, probably. I, I just think on the husband's, from the husband's perspective, he's going to say, well, I was on the hook and paid down the mortgage and now you mm-hmm. want half of the equity out of it. But likely, I mean, anyone that has a mortgage knows your monthly payment, only a fraction of it goes to actually paying down the principal balance of the mortgage. Most of yep. it goes to interest, interest even at our yep. nominal interest rates. So to extract out how much of your portion, the listener's portion, he was paying off on the mortgage on a monthly basis, it's likely so nominal, depending on the mortgage structure. Um, it's probably not worth pursuing, but I have seen that argument. So I think as a general rule, I totally agree with you, Rob. You move out, you're responsible for your expenses. He keep stays in clean, the house. Keep it simple. He's yeah. responsible for the expenses. You clearly have no more benefit of living in the house if you move out. And I do want to bring this fully back to our first episode, which is separate and apart. It appears based on the question, although it's not abundantly clear, that you're both still living under one roof. Roof, excuse me. And you're you're now you're now contemplating moving out of the house. The sooner you can live separate and apart, the sooner all the other parts of the divorced and done process will fall into place. Because if you're living together, as we discussed at length in our first episode, it's just going to create a barrier to actually moving this through uh, to being done. Because, uh, well, or it's going to put you on a path to conflict that will not be easily undone and potentially even throw you into court and put you further away from a mediated or much more low impact result that we would Im- we would encourage all of the time. The third question this listener has is how does spousal support work and how is the amount of support determined? I want to put a pin in this question and I want to encourage this listener to Uh, Listen to future episodes. Rob and I are going to do likely multiple episodes on spousal support, likely two episodes, uh, one of which will be number one, what is entitlement to spousal support? And number two, if there is an entitlement to spousal support, how is it calculated? Uh, Those are complex matters. We're going to break them down as simply as possible. But because we haven't addressed them yet on the podcast, we would be getting ahead of ourselves by... Uh, trying to address this question at this point. And I think at this point, uh, we've addressed most of the listener questions we have. We'll get to some others as we continue with future episodes. And I want to thank everyone for sending their questions in and for continuing to listen. 
Thank you ever so much. Uh, of course, more questions. If anyone else has any further questions, please send them to us because we do endeavor to answer all questions we receive. Even though we can't guarantee when we will answer them, we do hope to answer them in all future episodes. Lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. And you can find us online at divorcedanddone.com. Thank you for being with us. We look forward to joining you again. Yeah.